we're in one of the most disruptive economic times we've ever seen. We got fast and easy money flowing all over the place. We got businesses that are, you know, restricted from operating under normal parameters. We've got inflation of goods. We got supply chain issues. We got people wanting raises uh, and, and competing for labor. So you got a lot, of, a lot of stuff moving. If you take labor and mix it in with something that's not labor, you can't see what what piece is moving. Now, and even in standard times, people would lose sight of the fact that they would have a, a labor problem because their labor costs would be going up, but they might have had a raw material cost that was going down and that compensated for it. And they're just merrily going along the way thinking everything's great. Well, guess what? That labor cost that goes up, it doesn't come back down again. It, it keeps going up. And that raw goods cost, it may have temporarily gone down, but you know, have you checked the price of oil lately? Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. If there's one thing that's made me successful in my 20 plus years as an entrepreneur, it's surrounding myself with people smarter than me. And fortunately, there's no shortage of those people. My company's full of them. My professional and social social networks are full of them. I'm often the dim light bulb in a room full of spotlights. And my guest today is one of those spotlights. To me and through EO, the Entrepreneurs' Organization, thousands of other business leaders. Greg is a CPA, but he's also an entrepreneur, writer, speaker, and thought leader in the area of business finance. His first book, Simple Numbers, is on the short list of books I recommend to aspiring entrepreneurs. I call it the I wish I knew then what I know now list. And he's just updated it with Simple Numbers 2.0, Rules for Smart Scaling, and that's now on my list as well. He also contributed a chapter to the other, another one of the books on the list, Scaling Up, by that Vern Harnish gets all the credit for, but the accounting chapter, I think, is pretty much Greg talking. So a couple of years ago, the, the firm that Greg uh, started was acquired by Carr, Riggs, and Ingram CPAs and Advisors, a top 25 U.S. accounting firm, but Greg's focus continues to be on helping small businesses scale. So welcome to Good Morning HR, Greg Crabtree. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Appreciate you having me. So when I first read Simple Numbers, the first version, I'd owned my business for over a decade. I'd survived the 2007-2008 financial crisis and had money in the bank. So I thought, I'm doing pretty good at this whole business finance thing. I've got this down. But then when I read Simple Numbers, just lights started going off. It was like, I, I felt like paparazzi were all around me because it's like, oh, that makes sense now. Or, of course. Or, you know, I just, it was so obvious. Why do you think that is? Why do most business leaders just misunderstand about their company's finances? Uh, I'm going I'm to blame the accounting profession because, uh. you know, accountants do a really good job of making business owners work for them instead of us working for the business owner. And, and that was something that I learned from my uh, EO forum. So I, I joined EO in 2001 and I, you know, I, I still marvel at thinking what my, what my life would have been like had I not joined EO. 
and and that forum you know gave me the insight to say you know hey what is it that we're missing as a profession because you know the sad part was I, I asked him i said well how many of you would recommend your current accountant and it was none i mean it, it's like yeah the the best comment was eh and and i said all right so you know if, if you're familiar with net promoter score that comes out to a zero which is not good and so i said okay well what is it we're not doing you know that helps you and you know and yeah there was the you know the first thing was hey we don't like the tax day surprise i said okay well i know how to fix that so you know what else is well i've been billed by the hour which if you think about it most of us who who bill by the hour don't like to pay people by the hour you know when we do services either so it's like okay so i had to figure out a way to productize a service much like what you've been able to do and and then the, but the last piece was the damning indictment of a profession they said oh by the way you see hundreds of businesses most intimate details you want to have some idea what works and what doesn't and and it's so true because we spend all of our time with the most sensitive data in the world of private businesses for the most part and and it's like we're not paying attention to what we can learn from it. We're we're processing a piece of paper. We're processing a tax return, and 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 really doing a pretty poor job of of at least communicating financial, um, you know, understanding, you know, in that process. And fortunately, I, I just I was lucky enough to have some clients that I just kind of picked their brains and figured out what they were seeing and what are they looking at and. And, and just started accumulating all that stuff. And then when I got into EO, it really turned my focus to where, you know, I, I ceased thinking of myself as an accountant. I saw myself as an entrepreneur who did accounting uh, in business consulting. And, and so that really changed the focus there uh, and, and really started driving to, okay, wh what is the need of the market? And I, and I start the Simple Numbers 2.0 book, figure out what the market needs, find a way to do it profitably. That, that's that's the key and we we don't do a good job in business of figuring out what the market needs um there was a great thing uh, actually you know when i was doing the uh the, the last accelerator day for your chapter um you know there's a great segment that talked about you know want 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 you know and, and you know what your customers want isn't what they need and, and that need is a different discussion and you got to dig in and really figure out is so they may say that they want this but that actually doesn't cause them to react and really today i mean we've we've turned this thing to where you know when i joined eo in 2001 you know we had about a million dollar practice that all of that was in huntsville alabama where my office is and today you know we're uh, this office is doing about six and a half million and 90% of that's not in Huntsville, Alabama. I mean, we've got clients as far as Australia and Southeast Asia and uh, Canada and uh, Latin America. And, you know, and it's pretty cool. I mean, you know, it's nice to, to have that broader reach, but I really love challenging our ideas in every economic marketplace that exists to say, you know, if this is, truly is a financial principle, it works everywhere. And so far, I think our simple numbers concepts do. So most, like you, you sold me, I think I didn't need a lot of sales on that, that, that most accounting firms uh, have their own magic, their own, their own, you know, they play their cards uh, pretty close to their vest, don't really want to make their uh, customers that independent from them and uh, aren't that interested in really what, what their customers do for a business as a business and they just mostly just you know give us your numbers and we'll do your tax returns 
Um, so what would you say that the two or three things that, a, a, you know, a business leader or a manager in a, in, a, in a line management function in an organization really ought to understand about business finance? Well, I think the, the first thing that you have to understand is margin creation. And so in, in my book, I talk about there's two steps of margin. And it's important, especially in the HR mindset of it, to understand that there's a margin, what we call gross margin, is revenue minus cost of goods before any labor is applied. So margin, and, we're talking about cash left after we sell something, we get the money in, then the cost of making it goes out the door. Whatever's left in that bucket is margin, right? That, that, that's gross margin. Yeah, gross. gross margin minus my direct labor is then a second tier of margin that we refer to as contribution margin. And I contend that contribution margin is the most important number in business. It's more important than revenue, more important than gross margin. It's more important than net income because it is the output of the business engine. It is the horsepower of your business engine before I've, I have operating expenses and all the load you know, that a business has to carry. We also find that contribution margin is the most understandable number for every key line leader in the business. You don't have to be a financial expert, but you do know how to get to that number. But I'm only asking you to know three numbers, revenue, cost of goods sold, and direct labor. That's that's only that's only three numbers it takes to get to there. But that's a big argument in a lot of organizations. What is direct labor? The accounting department and the HR department and the line supervisors may have all different opinions of so what's your definition of direct labor? How do you figure that out? Yeah, my definition is, you know, whoever is doing whatever you do as a business. If you're a services business, it's whoever's facing the customer. If you're if you have field services, if I'm doing construction, landscaping and I have field supervisors. Well, to me, those field supervisors are direct labor. Their 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 hands are getting dirty, making margin every day of what they do. And so in our bifurcation of labor, we want it in two buckets, what's direct. And once I define who's indirect, by default, everybody else is in management labor and, and we'll deal with them separately. And, and so once we identify and we call it a butt in a bucket, too, I don't like splitting a person between one bucket and the other. You're either all direct or all management. And it's the reason why I call it simple numbers. I want them simply to be in one place and, and I've got to support them as to why they're there and just be consistent across time. And I always tell people, so, you know, don't, don't sweat it. If you got somebody who's kind of marginal, just pick a spot to put them and just be consistent. And then it's the movement of the data that is what tells you that, that what you need to know. And so in the HR world, you know, the, the thing that HR really would move to the next level is the ability to measure output. Now, what is output? Well, it's not ours, you know, I mean, if you, you know, uh, when I talked about earlier about not wanting to be billed by the hour, um, you know, and, and it's where I always remind my, my clients who in the hourly billing services, if you bill by the hour, there's only two possible outcomes. You either gave away your expertise or you charge for your ignorance. I, there, there's no economic equilibrium billing by the hour. And I, I have done both. I've had a $70 million hour in my career, which I'm pretty proud of. And I've, I've had some less than zero uh, hours, you know, that in my career. Um, I just need more of those $70 million hours. You know, and, and so so when those things happen and you start to understand how to measure output, that's a superpower in a business. 
and and we tend to lower our expectations of measuring activities rather than output and so that's the reason why we created our famous labor efficiency ratio concept which is looking at gross margin divided by direct labor now most people when they start to looking at, at key performance indicators of a business they'll take labor and and what's labor as a percentage of revenue that is one of the dumbest calculations ever i i, I got news for you i mean revenue is a slippery snake that you just can't catch and and sometimes it's worth more sometimes it's worth less and it's just the wrong thing to measure hardly anything against so when you're so saying I, that let me back that up okay yeah. so revenue what's your why is revenue a bad number let's 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 nail that down real well, quick let's, because let's take I've, a, a, yeah. I've, fallen, I've fallen into that trap before. Yeah, so let's take a good example. So let's, let's take a customer who's, uh, we got a lot of clients in the HVAC industry. So I've got a maintenance agreement that I charge a customer $1,000 a month to maintain their HVAC systems. And so I got a person that goes out and I get $1,000 of revenue a month whether I go out to look at it or not. Well, what's that revenue worth versus I, I sold that person a $1,000 piece of equipment that cost me seven hundred dollars and i got three hundred dollars left over and i still got to send a tech out there to install it and so when everything's all said and done i might clear a hundred dollars okay so it's a thousand dollars of revenue which one which one's worth more which one's worth less it's not the same thing and you 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 see example after example almost every business has exactly one of those examples and, and, and people chase revenue. My good colleague, Alan Miltz, who teaches, uh, you know, the power of one and cash flow story. Alan says, you know, revenue is vanity, uh, profit is sanity and cash is king. And he is absolutely right. You know, that, you know, we've got to find a different way. And so we've really identified gross margin. Once I take revenue minus the cost of goods sold, I have normalized every business activity in the world at that point to say this is your true economic top line of your business now there's a cash flow impact of that other stuff passing through but that's a different discussion for a different day and let's take a quick break good morning hr is brought to you by imperative premium background checks with fast and friendly service if you're an hrci or sherm certified professional this episode of good morning hr has been pre-approved for one half hour of business recertification credit to obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Recert Credits. Then select episode 25 and enter the keyword Crabtree. That's C-R-A-B-T-R-E-E. 23 years ago, I founded Imperative to partner with risk-averse companies in making well-informed decisions about the people they involve in their business. We've identified the most common ways background check companies cut corners that impact the quality, accuracy, and depth of the information they provide employers. And their clients aren't even aware of these issues until something goes wrong. You can download the six questions you should ask of your background check vendor at imperativeinfo.com six. And of course, you can always reach out to Imperative to discuss your background check process through our website at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Greg Crabtree. In, in simple numbers, you talked about there's three kinds of company, three models. They make stuff, they sell stuff, or they do stuff, right? That's right. And so, like, 
your firm and really my firm uh, is mostly a, uh, a do stuff, you know, yeah, where services, yeah. services. I've got some cost of goods sold direct because we buy a lot of data and that's actually about a third of my revenue, which is, you know, um, but you like your accounting firm, your gross margin is pretty close to your revenue number, isn't it? It, it? it almost exactly is. There's very few things. We could outsource stuff if we outsource things, took a piece of work and outsourced it to a third party. And but we were the billing face to the customer, that would be subcontract labor and that would come out before a gross margin. But in, in a pure services environment, you know, revenue and gross margin are, are almost exactly the same. But if we were making widgets, all the plastics and the screws and whatever uh, that it took to put together to, to create those widgets we're selling, that would be cost of goods sold, right? Absolutely. Yep. Or for a hospital, medical supplies, uh, we don't put in infrastructure in there though, right? So, but medical supplies and uh, things Any, like that. Anything that is just directly associated with that sale. Now, Traditionally, accountants will take that labor, direct labor piece, and mix it in with cost of goods sold and get to a term that is commonly used called gross profit. So I'll, I'll credit Vern Harnish with this. Vern, when I was writing the chapter for his Scaling Up book, he said, hey, I don't, you know, this gross profit term is kind of confusing. And I had used that term in, in my first book. And we've since changed it to gross margin ever since because of that comment that he made, because I thought he's spot on. And that he said, you know, the word profit is confusing. People think of that number as the bottom line. And so so we've really tried to be disciplined to use language that matters. A margin is a subset of an economic activity. It's not the bottom line, but it is that repeatable line of directly associated activities, you know, that tells you, hey, I got to stack these activities up. And, you know, when you go into a retail store, you know, that, that business owner can tell you, you know, they're selling you an item for $100 that they paid $50 for. And so their margin is $50. They, they know that number and they know, okay, well, you know, I won't, you won't pay a hundred. What if you pay 90? Well, they know then that they got $40 a margin. So a retail owner, you know, truly understands that concept of margin, or at least they should, or they won't be in business very long. So we get to gross margin, then we take out our direct labor costs, and that's what you call your contribution margin. Correct. And what does that tell an HR professional? What it tells you is when, and this is a classic time, we're in one of the most disruptive economic times we've ever seen. We got fast and easy money flowing all over the place. We got businesses that are, you know, restricted from operating under normal parameters. We've got inflation of goods. We've got supply chain issues. We've got people wanting raises uh, and, and competing for labor. So you got a lot, of, a lot of stuff moving. If you take labor and mix it in with something that's not labor, you can't see what, what piece is moving. Now, and even in standard times, people would lose sight of the fact that they would have a, a labor problem because their labor costs would be going up, but they might have had a raw material cost that was going down and that compensated for it. And they're just merrily going along the way thinking everything's great. Well, guess what? That labor cost that goes up, it doesn't come back down again. It, it keeps going up. And that raw goods cost, it may have temporarily gone down, but you know, if you check the price of oil lately, Let's see, uh, a few years ago, you know, it was down. It, it, I mean, just look at the graph of oil and it's all over the place. And, and so what goes down does come back up, you know, eventually. 
And you've got to separate labor from in in your your business model from everything that's not labor because labor is the one cost that comes to work every day with an attitude. It has good days, it has bad days, and 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 you've got to be able. It it does not produce at a constant output. When I have a cost of goods sold item, it is what it is. It does its thing, but when I have labor, what it did on Monday isn't what it did on Thursday, and Lord knows it's not what it did on Friday. Yeah, yeah, and 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 we're in a crisis right now. I think of, of productivity. We're we're in a productivity crisis. We we have the biggest bunch of excuses known to mankind as to why something can't get done timely. And I got it. Some things are you know restrictive, but when when the data that we see every day with our consulting calls with our clients, I mean, it is stunning the the challenges that people are facing in terms of getting output through the system. And, and, you know, and if you can't measure that, you can't combat it and really rally the troops and get those people back together and say, OK, I, I get it. I need you to be focused. I, and, and what we see is really helping people learn to get to a sustainable level of an output for for the run. So I put in the second book an example of um, Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile. That it was widely believed in the 50s no human could break a four-minute mile. So this is a perfect example of how HR can have a dramatic input on the or, or on the output of the business. The way Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile was he found a, a mile-long stretch that was about as flat as possible, perfect running conditions. He had a group of seven people forming a V in front of him that blocked the wind. And those people would drop in and drop out because they obviously couldn't keep pace, you know, for that that run. So they had to run faster than he was. Um, and then he had a, a pacer runner that was running it right next to him. And and so, you know, that was how he broke the four minute mile. And, and and so it's it's how do I get that consistent performance for four quarter mile cycles of, of what's happening? And when we measure labor productivity, we constantly have this measurement. We look at longer periods of time. It's just not moment to moment, but you're seeing this run of where you see labor efficiency peak and says, great. And the first question we ask the client when we see that is, are they running hot? Can you sustain it? And the answer is almost never yes. I mean, oh yeah, we're a little hot. Okay, well, you know, you're gonna see that come down as you add labor dollars to it, it comes down and, and people just come off of, they just can't keep it up. And and then you see where everybody's feeling good about stuff and labor efficiency is going in the toilet. Well, they may be feeling good about it, but it's like, guys, we're not going to have a job if you don't step it up. And there's a minimum amount of output that we've got to hit every month or else we cease to exist. It's it's physics at that point. So do you think I've, you mentioned uh, your quote about people being the one one part of the company that comes to work with an attitude every day. And I quoted you, in fact, on a blog post I did for the State HR Association a, a few months ago, because I argue that you can't manage people, that you can manage code, you can manage materials, you can manage a lot of the inputs into your business, but people are a hot mess. The best we can do is incentivize them, coach them, and on a really good day, lead them. But using that term management puts the wrong expectation on the man. It's not fair to the manager and it's not really fair to the person either. Um, so when we're talking about managers, do you think most managers see themselves as stewards of someone else's investment? Not really, because they 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 see themselves, I think, most of the time is I'm doing all the things you asked me to do. What else do you want me to do? 
and and so so as we came up with our direct labor efficiency ratio of gross margin per labor dollar of input let me let me put another kpi to, to kill the other kpi that you should never ever use is revenue per employee now i don't know who came up with that but that is a dumbest thing you could i mean that is that is absolutely degrading to the human race People are deleting their scorecards all over the country as they listen to this. That's right, and they should. That that is that is absolutely dehumanizing to to look at revenue per body. I got news for you. Every human is a very distinct entity that has a lot of capability, and you you know I you know for most services professions where we track time, I can get down to LER by person. Um, you know, a lot of people don't have that sophistication, but I can get it down to by team or by group, you know, or by division, you know, those kind of things for larger companies. Uh, so it depends on what your, what your data systems are. But, um, but the other thing that we came up with, so that's direct labor efficiency, the, where we've helped probably most of our clients, I think even the most, is management labor efficiency because we, we look at, we take management labor, everything other than direct labor, and we look at contribution margin per management labor dollar. And so now we have an economic metric to hold that manager accountable to, is it, yes, we felt good about the activity today, but did we accomplish anything? It's not about activity, it's about accomplishment. And until I see a dollar trickle down the contribution margin, management didn't do its job. Now, what's management's job? It's three things drive revenue, manage cost of goods sold, manage direct labor. And and I, I, I got to get the harmony of, I can't be singularly focused on one to the detriment of the other two. And sometimes I got great labor, I just doing a sucky job of selling. Sometimes I do a great job of selling and I just, I'm horrible at building a team and, and developing talent. And, and talent development, we're in an age right now that I, I'm telling you, with the labor shortages that we have, you better have a talent development mindset and a talent development process that you can really take the raw talent. Because in, in the second book, I have this famous graph that everybody loves. It's called the career labor efficiency curve. And essentially, it's where it's three phases. In the first phase, we call it the training zone. You're, you're paying a person more than what they're producing. As soon as you hit that crossover point, you're into what we call the chasing zone, which is they're producing more than you're paying them. And as they produce more, their pay catches up. They produce more and their pay catches up. I don't pay them more and their pr production catches up. Whenever you flip in that other way, you're dead. I mean, it, it, you're, you're, you're long, not long for this world. The third zone is where inevitably, this is the uncomfortable discussion that we all many times have to have, is we call it the replacement zone. A person has risen to a level of compensation, but their productivity has not maintained it. And this is the uncomfortable discussion that we don't want to have in labor markets. There's a potential point that I'm paying to a person too much money for what they produce, and they need to get a job someplace else. It's as simple as that. And, and now the good news is there's plenty of jobs, and so they shouldn't be unemployed. But they, I can't survive as a business. I can't just keep paying them because I want to. I mean, I'm not, you know, they're, they're, we've had people that I, I love. I mean, I, I like that person, but I, I'm damaging the business to keep paying them because they can't produce at the level that they want in pay. Well, let me, you know, a uh, uh, good, uh, good friend of mine, uh, Robert Glazer, who, uh, who uh, had a company uh, recently exited, but Robert's written several books and I love his concept. He calls it the mindful transition. 
And we've been successful with that, of helping people who hit that point in their career of going, hey, you're a valuable person. You got skills. We can't make money off of what you're doing, so it doesn't work for our model. But we got time. I mean, you know, hey, you need to start looking someplace else. And and I, every one of them's found a place to go. I mean, I, I, you know, it, it, that's not actually been a problem, but it didn't work for us. And and there was no way that we could change what we were doing, you know, to bill enough for what that person wanted in compensation and could produce. But aren't all these evil aren't all these evil employers just just refusing to pay people twenty dollars an hour and just I mean, you know, that's what we hear, right? It's you know, isn't that the problem? Or what you're describing is the problem with some of those those intense minimum wage. We can we can find we can find the proof text of where in some cases yes if you paid more money you would get you would use less people and get the same output if not more output and this is the reason why this is why I like our labor efficiency concept because it's not body based it's dollar based for a dollar of input, you know, and, and we, we, we stole a page out of the NFL playbook. I mean, our, we believe in the salary cap. There's a finite amount of dollars that you can spend for direct labor and management labor in every business model. Pick, put, you know, draft your team. Put, put, you know, you can be, you can be an offensive-minded team. So we, we kind of, you know, consider, you know, a, a, a team that is, you know, you, you, you hire the best direct labor people and pay the top of the market. Well, you know, that's an offensive team and you got a very you have to have a very skinny management then for that. And if I hire lower cost people, I got to have more management labor dollars. So I'm going to give it up in one or the other, but it's it's your 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 play to call. You you, you take your pick. I don't really care. We've seen both plays win. And we do a lot of business group data sets where we've got mastermind groups in the same industry, and we can see in those companies ones that will deploy each each type of, of labor approach. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's not magical of you put a dollar in, you don't always get a dollar back out, you know, to cover it. And and you got to do something about that. One thing, we're almost out of time, but one thing we haven't heard is, we haven't heard the term balance sheet. We haven't heard the term profit and loss statement or any of those other accounting tools that, that we hear a lot. Um, how useful are those for for frontline managers to understand or or is are the kinds of metrics you're talking about just a lot more important? I think the most important metrics are the ones we just talked about because that's the creation. Now, here's the thing. Those other operating costs, guess what? They don't change very much. So once I once I know them, I, I don't have to keep staring at them to see if they move. They, they're there. And, and so one of the things that we pushed our client base to do is understand what your gross margin target is the first day of the month and monitor that production throughout the month to make sure you hit your minimum acceptable target of output. And, and to us, that's the only way that people are hitting their targets. If you wait until the month's over and half of, through the next month or even at the end of the next month, you look back, say, hey, did we make a profit? Oh, no. Oh, shucks. Uh, we'll try to better next month. That, that is not a recipe for success. You've got to be able to monitor it as you go. And, and there's, you know, you don't have to be perfect at it. You just got to be good enough. Where the balance sheet does matter, though, and this is where more if the line managers are interacting with the customer relative to terms. So there is a concept we call the cash power ratio of understanding, you know, of, 
of the percentage of dollars that I got to hold in my hand of AR work in progress inventory minus trade support from AP or getting um, uh, getting cash in advance from a customer. That net number of what we call trade capital, you know, that turns over month in and month out. It's important to understand that when I'm dealing with a customer who wants elongated terms, there's got to be a compensating effect. I need to be making more margin. It can't just be volume or else I'm going to grow myself out of business. And and there's some really good techniques to understand why you need to push for terms and, and make sure that, you know, to me, the fairness doctrine has always been, hey, why don't you pay me as I'm spending money on your behalf? And, and we're both fair. You know, that, that that's the easiest thing to be. But yet there's some financial bullies out there that want to hold your money for 90 days. Well, I'd, I'd probably be finding somebody else to do business with if I was you, you know, that it's like, no, nah, no, nah, I, I got, you know, if other people are paying you in shorter term, why do you keep accepting the people who want to pay you in longer terms? You're just, you're just helping them promote being a bad corporate citizen. And there's other options in, in most cases. Well, thank you, Greg. This is, we're out of time, but, and, and I've seen you talk about this for <laughs> seven or eight hours at a time. And, and it's, uh, it's always interesting. The book is Simple Numbers, Simple Numbers 2.0, Rules for Smart Scaling. And you can find it uh, anywhere you buy books. It's certainly on Amazon, and we'll have it in the show notes as well. Uh, thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer and Imperatives Marketing Coordinator. Katie Bautista keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.